was down in Minneapolis last uh, Friday night for uh, a band was covering Neil Diamond songs. That was fun. Sweet Caroline. You know it. It was so much fun. But um, I'm always processing, almost always processing things on a whole lot of different levels. And, uh, and I'm like, why, even though these songs are fun, wh- why is there such a difference um, between, for me anyway, uh, how, how I'm interacting with that band and, and, and on Sundays, you know? And thanks for bringing the songs and bringing us to a place week in and week out um, where it's qualitatively different because we're singing to somebody, and we're, we're singing about that day so often that's going to come when we're all um, in a place where all is as things should be. So I'm looking forward to that day. Well, earlier um, in the day, I had also been in Minneapolis. I had an appointment down there, and I parked my little forerunner. I got out, and the car in front of me had this bumper sticker on it. The bumper sticker said, annoy a Christian, think for yourself. And I read that, and I'm just so sad, you know. I'm so sad that so many Christians have earned this reputation. And so here's my challenge to us um, as we get started this morning. You know, if you're going to bring God into a conversation, represent him well. Kind of like if you're going to go to a restaurant, if you're going to pray before your meal, tip well. I mean that. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> well, um, but also, if you're going to bring God into any conversation, represent him well, as well as you can as a broken, broken vessel. We're going to stumble along the way, but, but represent him well. And when God reveals himself through his written word, through spirit, when he reveals himself through the example of Jesus, he reveals himself in this way. I mean, those of you who walk with Jesus, you know both of these things are true. He, God is love. And God is holy. And he represents himself as both of those things. There's no disconnect between these categories with God. They're not exclusive. If you're going to represent God well, you can't love as God loves without calling people to holiness. And you can't be holy as God defines holy unless you love one another. It's both. If you're going to represent him well, it's a both and. I mean, you, you see this in the scripture, sometimes in the same verse. Here's an example of this. First uh, John 3, 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, who are not the children of God. Or the children of the devil, he says there. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, but nor is the one who does not do what? Love his brother. So it, it's a both and. God is love. And his people are called upon to tell the world about his love and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You can't represent God well without extending amazing grace and forgiving others the way God has forgiven you. And God is also holy. As his people, we're called to be holy, the scripture says, because he is holy. And the same Jesus who said, you know you're my disciples, if you love one another, he also said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Well, we want to be a people as best we can. As much as it depends on us, we want to be people who represent God well. We want to try to do that. And we've tried to do that within this series as, as, as best as we can. Um, the first two weeks, we, we, we were extra heavy on love. Because if you're going to error, error on the side of what? Love. If you're going to error, if it's even possible to say that, if you're going to error, error on the side of love. And in weeks one and two, we encourage you, be quick 
to listen. Be slow to speak. And especially be slow to judge. There's some folks you shouldn't judge. Well, that's another discussion for another day. We, we challenge you. Get to know people as individuals. Get to know them as individuals without making assumptions based on categories that you may have been putting someone into a box about. We made it clear that ECC cannot be a place where we offer two different invitations or two different gospels. We offer one gospel. We offer one invitation. And that is to say, people, experience God with us. Well, in this series, week three was a bridge week. In week three, we explained as Christian, the Bible serves as our standard for faith and conduct. You know, how do we know what our father is like? How does he know what it means to come home? How do we know what it means to honor the family name without becoming like that older brother that we read about in the, in the, the story of the lost son? Well, the Bible's our standard for that, which then brings us to last week. Oh, hardest message ever delivered here at the church. We, we looked at Leviticus 18.22, perhaps the most controversial passage, at least right now, in the entire Old Testament. It appears in a book of the Bible that instructed the newly formed nation of Israel in what holiness was to look like for them in that time, in that place in history. Well, last week we zoomed in, and if we're going to do our hermeneutics well, what do we do next? We zoom out, and that's what we want to do this week. So here's the question we're going to try to wrestle with today as, as best we can. We're going to look at how Jesus and Paul applied the same scriptures in their unique context. What I mean by that is Jesus and Paul had what we call the Old Testament. They had Leviticus. They knew it really, really well. How did they apply it in their context? In their context, Jesus and Paul, their contexts were each unique. As you mentioned last week, some instructions that appear in Leviticus should be applied today as written. Some should be applied today in principle. And one of the ways we can tell which is which, or we have a better idea at least, which is which, is by looking at how did Jesus apply them? How did Paul apply them? And last week I gave you some homework. I said, if you're going to quote Leviticus ever, what should you do first? Read it, right? If you're going to quote it, at least read it. Well, here's the homework I want to give you this week. And this one was so helpful for me. So helpful for me. Before you comment on what Jesus did or didn't say, you know, before you comment on what Paul did or didn't say, I want to encourage you to, to not even just read it to do the zoom in. You should do that too. But do the zoom out. I hadn't done it. I'm a 44-year-old pastor. I'd never done this before. Do the zoom out when it comes to Jesus. Do the zoom out when it comes to Paul. A lot made a lot more sense. When, what I mean by zooming out is to take with the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, zoom out, and look and say, okay, big picture. Who was Jesus' audience? What were, what were the concerns that people were coming to Jesus with? What was his situation? Where was he? What was his specific mission? Who did he come into contact with? What, what was going on? Well, you do that, all of a sudden things start to jump if you just do the zoom out. And, and don't just zoom in, but zoom out. Things start to jump. It's like, okay, Jesus, he's establishing his identity here as the Messiah, you, just, you see that theme. He's, he's establishing his identity as the son of David, the king of the Jews, the very son of God. An enormous amount of text in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is dev excuse me, devoted to Jesus establishing his identity through signs and wonders by linking Jesus' words and actions to ancient prophecies. Demons are cast out and people are healed and the good news is preached to the poor. The religious wrong are rebuked. The lost are welcomed home. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, Jesus' primary audience 
as he's establishing himself as the Messiah are to the ones who are waiting for the Messiah, the Jews. And he ministered, I would probably exclusively, within the ancient boundaries of what was once the nation of Israel. So do that flyover. I would encourage you to do that. And then, after you do that with the Gospels, the story of Jesus, now do that with Paul. Do it with the book of Acts. Do it with the letters of Paul. And all of a sudden you start to go, oh, wait a minute. Paul is called to a different situation. There's certainly some overlap, but a different situation. When the Holy Spirit fell on the church, that was a game changer. And now they're like, what do we do with this? What in the world? And you see the mission that Jesus gave his disciples, and you see where they're ministering all around the world the known world of the time, looking at the issues they faced. Some were similar, but some were very, very different than the issues that Jesus was facing face to face. The differences in some ways are like night and day. Jesus focused primarily on the lost sheep of Israel. Paul was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which means to the non-Jews. The book of Acts and in the letters of Paul, you see Paul responding to a whole lot of different folks. Very diverse crowd. And you see some of his letters address some of the same things. Other letters are addressing specific things. you got situations where Paul is saying, Hey, you, slave owner guy. When you welcome back this slave that's been spending time with me, welcome back him not as a slave, but as a brother. You've got Paul saying, Hey, you, getting drunk during communion guy. What are you thinking? You've got Paul saying this, Hey, you, fighting over baptism guy. Remember our unity in Christ. You've got, Hey, you, causing division guy. That may fly in your other circles. In the church, it is two strikes and you're out. It's, Hey, you, wanting to get handouts without working guy. He says to you, If you don't work, you don't eat. And then there's this one. Hey, you, sleeping with your mom guy. Even the pagans don't do that. So you've got Paul <laughs> responding to everyone from the Galatians to the Corinthians. and you, you see, he's just got so many different issues he's trying to deal with. And, and Paul and his contemporaries, they're living in an age where, as I mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit had been poured out like never before. You have all these people going, what was that? And should we do that again in the church or not? You've got all of these things happening. You've got this church that is now functioning. They're the body of Christ. Okay, how do we do this well? How do we function? How do, there are new precedents. There are leaders to develop. There are policies to establish. There are all these new mission fields where each have their own issues and they have their own gods. People didn't agree on which foods were kosher. Unlike Jesus' day. People didn't agree, or Jesus' context. People didn't agree on what holiness looked like. People certainly didn't agree on which sexual behaviors were and weren't okay. And so you've got Paul and Jesus ministering in two very different contexts. How did they apply the Levitical codes? You know, How did they do it? Because if you've got two different contexts and you see some similar patterns, that might be helpful. Or if you see different patterns, that might be helpful. Well, before we go there, look into that, I want to say it is so important to note that both Jesus and Paul, they ascribed great authority to their own teachings. That's important to note. There are some times where you see Paul saying, hey, this is me, not the Lord. But for the most part, Jesus and Paul, they ascribe great authority to their own teachings. Here's some examples. Jesus says this. He goes, you love me, you keep my commandments. 
I'm not just opinionating on you. If I give you a commandment and you love me, keep it. And then you've got Paul. Man, can you imagine if I came and said this to y'all? Even if an angel, this is Paul from Galatians 1.8, even if an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. So you got Jesus and Paul presenting their teachings rarely as their own, excuse me, own opinions. They went a step further even than this. They said, don't just follow our doctrine. They said, follow our example. Don't just follow my teachings, follow my example. Again, both Jesus and Paul do this. Here are some examples. This is from Luke 14, 27. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and do what? Follow me cannot be my disciple. And then you've got Paul saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To summarize, we have Jesus and Paul, two men in very different contexts, each saying, do as I say, and do as I do. What example did they set for us? Well, here's one of the examples they set. Both Jesus and Paul maintained what we called in week three a high view of Scripture. Both Jesus and Paul did this. They maintained a high view of Scripture. They referenced the Scriptures. They quoted the Scriptures. What they had, we now call the Old Testament. They quoted them. They referenced them. They taught from them. Here's an example of this. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? Here's the response. Many of you have seen this before or have heard this before. When Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get these things? He got them from Scripture. And he took a mashup. He did a mashup of two passages from two different books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and with all your might. And Leviticus, of all places, he quotes. Leviticus 18 or 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They both maintained a high view of Scripture. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, including that passage from Leviticus, and then he said, there's no commandment greater than these. Jesus spoke of the law. When he spoke of the law, he spoke of it in authoritative terms. If you have your Bibles, let me show you an example of this. Um, and, and one of the reasons we need to bring this up time and time again is there's a lot of teaching out there, a lot of teaching out there, where they, they draw this false distinction between Old and New Testament. Old Testament was law and New Testament is grace. No, they're both both. You know, Jesus came to abolish the law. No, he didn't. To come, these are Jesus' words right now. Okay, this is from um, the book of Matthew, chapter 17. Uh, no, book of Matthew, chapter 5, starting with verse 17. And as we're turning here, I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a copy, we'd love to give you one free. We keep a stack of them there at uh, either of the, the two entrances, and they're there for, for you. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew, chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth disappear, or until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according to 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices the teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus abolish the law? No, he came to fulfill it. And that's one of the things that he starts to do in his context. He starts to, to apply these. And when he applies them, some of them he applies more word for word. We saw that in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. There's others where he starts to apply them and, and lets people know this has been fulfilled. It now looks different in your context. Or you're missing the spirit that was behind this command. And so he helps people understand. He helps them understand, better understand the, 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 what, what he was trying to say. Now, Paul also held the high view of Scripture. Here's an example of this one. Paul says this, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you've got Jesus and Paul both holding a high view of Scripture, but here's where it gets really tricky. Here's where it gets really tricky because both Jesus and Paul were consistent in their inconsistent application of Scripture. Got it? All right, let's close in prayer. Go forth, serve Lord. Yeah, they were both consistent in their inconsistent application of, of Scripture. This is really fascinating when you look at it. When it came to things like food and certain rituals, special days, both Jesus and Paul provided what we called in week three breakouts and seed ideas. They provided this teaching that commented on an Old Testament teaching that got people to see it and understand it in new ways. They did that with the food rituals. They did that with uh, food uh, and rituals and special days and these types of things. Here's an example um, regarding dietary restrictions. If you have your Bibles, let's open this up to Mark chapter 7. And leave it open here too because I want to show you two passages from here. Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 18 and 19. <laughs> and I love how Jesus talks to folks. I need to hear these words. Are you so dull? He asked. <laughs> okay, this is church. We can be honest, right? How many of you ever needed to hear that? <laughs> okay. I, all right. Are you so dull? He asked. Um, don't you see that nothing enters into a person from the outside that can defile them? For doesn't it go into their? It doesn't go into their heart, but it goes into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, the parentheses you see on the screen are, are right from the Scripture. They're not from ones that I just added, which is really interesting because I thought Jesus there was talking about the act of washing before you ate, but he also, this piece is thrown in there too. Jesus declares all food clean. So, so what, why is it as a church who believes a high view of Scripture? Why is it we're a church that we believe that Leviticus was delivered by God? Why, why do we not teach that you should abstain from all the foods that are in, in, in um, that Leviticus says to abstain from because of examples and passages like this? Where, where, where it appears as though Jesus is, is doing something different. He's helping us to understand it in a way um, that, that maybe we didn't understand before. Now, again, for the record... Jesus and Paul are not dismissive of what comes from the law or the prophets. I'm having to choose my words really carefully here because I don't even understand how all this works together. They're not dismissive. But what they do is they help us understand that some of what was taught in days of old has been fulfilled. And some was contextual. Jesus and Paul are consistent in their inconsistent application of Scripture because while both didn't apply food restrictions from Leviticus word for word, 
they did treat sexual prohibitions differently. We have, two, we have some examples from Jesus specific to adultery. That's what we have with, with him. He didn't mention homosexual behaviors um, at, at all unless it's grouped with his teaching on sexual immorality, but he did specifically um, talk about, uh, about adultery. We'll get to that in a second, but, but I almost forgot to keep reading with Mark. All right, in Mark, if we were to keep reading right where we left off, you can see that after he gets done saying with the food prohibitions, hey, all foods are declared clean, he, he goes right on to say then what comes out of a person, that's what defiles them. Here again, he's talking about holiness. It, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside to defile a person. So you see he's still addressing some of the things that we see in the Old Testament law, and he's still holding to those in a, in a way that seems different than he was holding to food. So now let's look at his specific teachings. It's interesting when Jesus speaks about adultery, he actually backs the line up. He makes it more restrictive. Take a look at this. These are Jesus' words. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Where do they hear that said? They heard that said. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Ten Commandments. But I tell you, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, they've already committed adultery in their heart. And then he says this one related to adultery. He goes, anyone who divorces his wife, must, or you, it has been said. Let me try that again. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If you do your scan, you're going to see some of these things. And one of the reasons I was doing the scan is I'm like, how much did Jesus really talk about sexual immorality? The reality is when I did my scan, he didn't talk about it much at all. These are the primary examples. He didn't really mention it, which gets you thinking, why not? Excuse me, why is he not mentioning Well, then, when you do the, the scan, you go, well, of course it makes sense he didn't mention it much. What was his context? Here's his context. His context, do you remember the account where a woman was caught in the act of adultery? What were they going to do to that poor woman? They were going to stone her. That's Jesus' context. They were Leviticus. At least those religious leaders were. They brought this woman caught in adultery. They didn't bring the guy. They didn't bring the guy. Exactly. Yeah, there's some other issues there we need to talk about at some point. They didn't bring the guy, so they bring this woman. They're ready to stone her. And what does Jesus say? He says, what does he say to the people who are going to stone the rocks, who are going to throw the rocks? He says to them what? Let, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Okay, and then what does he say to the woman after they all left? Because they're like, you know. What, what, they, what, what then what did he say to the woman? He said to the woman... Go and sin no more. And you see that there's the love and then there's the holiness and they're both together with Jesus. They're not most mutually exclusive. You know, and, and you need to know in this church, if you're a rock thrower, we'll have a conversation with you if we see you throwing rocks. And if you see me throwing rocks, I, give me that hard conversation. Because that's not okay for us to be throwing rocks at one another. And when a brother or sister is a professing Christian, and they're walking in disobedience to the commands of God, isn't the other part also then we come with gentleness and love and we put down the rock and we do all the self-examination and all that stuff that the scripture says, and then we come gently if they're a brother or sister, and we say, brother, sister, I got a question. 
concern? That seems to be the example that, that Jesus sets. So Jesus affirms the Levitical prohibition against adultery. He actually makes it more restrictive. He instructs men, don't even look at women lustfully. He provides added protection for women, which they sure needed at the time. If you were divorced by your husband back in that time at that place, it guaranteed poverty for you and isolation. And so Jesus is doing these protective measures. And then he doesn't say much, if anything, about the other sexual prohibitions in Leviticus. He doesn't, he doesn't mention them directly, which, again, to me anyway, makes sense given his context. You know, Leviticus was the background. Well, then you have Paul. And Paul is thrown into all these situations where it, it is all kinds of different circumstances. That's why the next um, section in your bulletin, I'd encourage you to, to reflect on this. The New Testament, at least to me, the New Testament sexual prohibitions seem to be found where you'd expect to find them. He, it seems as though, when I did my flyover, that Paul is, if there's something in a culture that isn't in alignment, as, as he understood it with, with the Old Testament, um, or with the, the uh, revelation of God that was given to him through the Spirit, then he appeared to, to address it. And specific to this topic, where, when you would expect if, for homosexuality to be commented on to the Romans and to the Corinthians, because in Rome, there was both heterosexual sex going on and homosexual sex. And the same was true in Corinth. And Timothy was a disciple of Jesus who was being sent to all these places. And so I'd encourage you to take a look at those, um, those passages on your own. But, but at least as I look at it, it appears as, you know, in Jerusalem, if, if this was going on, it was going on underground and, and it wasn't public. But in these other situations, it, it was. And in all three situations, if you look at those passages, Paul appears to, to say to Christian men, abstain from sex with other Christian men. He seems to say to Christian women, abstain, at least in Romans. The only place you find that address at all, women having sex with women as Romans, um, he appears to say abstain. Now, several of the sources I looked at mentioned that the sex took place in all kinds of different forms among the Greeks, which is where Corinth was. That was the old Greek empire was centered right around there. And the Romans. Um, you had sex that was both consensual and non-consensual. You had sex that was both exploitive and non-exploitive. You, you have these horrific accounts of soldiers that would rape male prisoners of war, and it appears it wasn't anything about lust. It was about, we're treating you like a woman. And, and, and so that was one of the ways it forms it took. It, you have situations where powerful men Powerful men would abuse young boys. You um, had, had homosexual practices that were linked with temple worship. There was sex between, twe- between teen males, uh, teenage males in ancient Greece. And there's even a few examples of poetry, erotic poetry, um, that appears to be more of a loving, consensual relationship. So you have a wide variety. You have a wide variety of practices. And Paul had some words that he could have used if he was trying to say, hey, this is not okay. You had a word, a Greek word for um, called prostitutes. You had a Greek word for pedophiles. Um, but Paul used different words. He used these two words. And again, he only mentions it um, in, in those three, uh, directly in those three passages I gave you. We don't have time to get into both words, so I'm going to focus on the one that has the most controversy, and that's the first one. Uh, my Greek is absolutely atrocious, um, for those listening online, it's A-R-S-E-N-O. This is a transliteration, not in Greek. 
A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T-A-I. Best guess, Arsena Koitai. I'll try to say that as few times as possible. So, All right, here we go. Um, we're going to zoom in the first. Now, the interesting thing about that word is that the first time that it appears in any ancient literature, it appears with Paul. Now, that doesn't mean no one else used it, but in all of the ancient fragments and documents and ancient literature that's out there, out of everything that is known to humankind, the first instance of this word being used was used by Paul, which leads some people to say, well, then how can you even interpret it? Come on. How can you even interpret it if you don't have a lot to compare it to? Well, it's not that simple. Um, the, you'll find that if you, if you go through the, the scriptures, uh, the translations, English translations, most people, well, all of, all of the sources would say that it's linked with men having sex with men. Well, where do they get that from? The word itself is made up of two Greek words. Arson, which means male, and koide, which means lying with. And what it looks like happened is Paul um, or someone created what's called a neologism using two words from Leviticus. Now, neologism is a, is a word that just means, hey, this is a coined phrase or a word that somebody made up, you know, that really hasn't been thrown in a dictionary yet. Um, we've got some of those. Photoshop was once a neologism. It was a word that someone created to explain this new thing. Fohawk. Fohawk, neologism, T-bowing, T-bowing is a neologism. So it's, it's, you, you coined a new phrase. Sometimes you've taken two words and, and mashed them together. Why do people think that um, that word is a neologism? Because it appears to have been pulled directly from Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, 13. Here, Greek has all kinds of different funky little letters. Here's the English, what's called a transliteration, trying to do like a pronunciation thing with the Greek. Up at the top, you see the Greek word that Paul uses. And then you see right there, Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, 13. You see that he takes the word for man that was used there. He takes the word for lying with, and he appears to make one word out of them. But you might be thinking, understandably so, wait a minute, wasn't the Old Testament written in Hebrew? Why would Paul have done this? Well, I think we've explained this before. The, the, the original texts of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew. But what Paul quoted from most often was what's called the Septuagint. It was an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And when you look at, sometimes you're going to wonder, you'll, you'll look at your Bible and you go, wait a minute, they're, they're quoting the Old Testament? This doesn't look exactly like the way they're quoting it. It's because sometimes the New Testament authors are quoting from the Greek translation. Anytime you go from one form to the next, there's going to be some slightly different uh, wording. So he appears to do that. But in Hebrew, in Hebrew, this is a, a quote I came across. It appears as though rabbis, possibly during Paul's time, certainly after Paul's time, were using a Hebrew phrase to do the same thing. They, they had a, um, a neologism Hebrew phrase where they took the Hebrew text of Leviticus to refer to homosexual intercourse. So all this to say, you know, as I do the best I can, as a person who's trying to be true to the Scripture and trying to follow Jesus, as I do the best I can to say, what did Paul do with this? It appears as though Paul said, if you're a young man, I would tell you to abstain from having sex with another man. 
if you're a young woman, I would tell you to abstain from having sex with a young woman. And if there was a precedent that we would have that was other than that in the scriptures, you know, then it would be easier for me to say, well, this one doesn't apply. Because I don't have that precedence, if someone asked me, if someone asked me, what do you think? I would say I would encourage you to abstain. That would be my thought on the matter. You know, but ultimately, like anything in Scripture, ultimately, like anything in Scripture, this is something you have to wrestle with. And this is why we've been encouraging you to take a look at some of these different books. This is why we put the Scriptures out there. Because ultimately, this has to be something that, that you wrestle, you know, personally with and dig into and and, and to 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 try to, as best you can, seek God on. I recently read the account of a, a gay man who um, went through this process himself. He, he ended up in prison. Um, he, I, I think this is the same guy that some of you were saying came and spoke at Bethel here uh, uh, not too long ago. Well, he ended up in prison on a drug-related charge, and then he writes this. And I just want to give you his words. This is the conclusion that he came to as he did this same thing. Um, he says, with plenty of time on my hand. Oh, I, I didn't mention this important part. He In prison, he ended up finding a Bible in a trash can. Found a Bible in a trash can. And so then he says this. He says, with plenty of time on my hands, I began reading God's word and disclosed my past to a prison chaplain. To my surprise, he told me that the Bible doesn't condemn, condemn homosexuality and gave me a book to read. With much curiosity, I took the book in hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexual sex and committed same-sex unions. I had that book in one hand. I had the Bible in the other. I had every reason to accept the book's assertions to justify same-sex relationships. But God's indwelling spirit convicted me that this book was distorting his word. I eventually realized I had, to put, I had put great emphasis on being gay. And now I needed to place my primary identity in Christ and now I'm so excited to see this slide come on the screen because now what we're going to do for the rest of this series from just closing comments today and for the foreseeable future, now we get to talk to everybody. I think one of the reasons this was such a hard, hard message is we were isolating such a very specific you know, behavior. And it's even in the scriptures, behaviors are usually grouped with other behaviors. And now we turn a corner, and now we're all back together because this applies to everybody, and it applies deeply to everybody. Newfound identity in Christ compels me to live in obedience to God, whether my temptations are changed or not. The gospel is about more than just correct beliefs. It leads to correct living as a result of correct beliefs. Why do we push you to examine the scriptures? Because we don't want to just come up with some kind of list of here's everything that's acceptable and everything that's not and, and all that because it, it's impossible to have that list for one thing. And secondly, ultimately, you have to, you have to own these things. You know? and, and I love what he says here about newfound identity in Christ. It compels me to live in obedience to God. That is something that is true for all of us, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. In the final week of this series, and in almost every series we ever teach here at this church, we're going to be looking, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we find our identity in Christ? How do we bring ourselves under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ? And this is, you know, these, this is something that is true for men and women, young and old, gay or straight. How many, with a show of hands, how many of you know that statues are not the only things that can become idols? All right. 
If you were here in spring, you should have put your hand up because we spent five weeks on that, right? On all the different things that can become idols to us. An idol can take the form of a perfect family or home. Your job can be an idol. Comfort can be an idol. Entertainment can be an idol. Freedom can be an idol. Wealth can be an idol. Health can be an idol. And sex can be an idol. We live in a world where our identities and desires will constantly come into conflict with our calling to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. We are going to have other identities and other desires that are going to come into conflict with that. And how do we live in a world where the things that we long for are not always the things that God says we can have? Maybe not now, maybe not ever. What do you do with that? Well, we started the series together with the biblical challenge to become a reconciliation bringer. You know, how do we take this message of reconciliation to the world where we say, you know, God wants to call you home? How do we do that, you know, specific to this issue? Well, here's where we're going to close. Is your own life reconciled with God? Are, Are there areas in your own life where you're saying, I'm not going to allow this, whether consciously or unconsciously, I'm not going to allow this to come under the Lordship. The Bible says this, but I'm going to do that. You know, are there areas, not are there, which areas in your own life are you struggling the most with reconciliation? Where are your own identities, your own desires competing with God's call? If you're going to bring God into a conversation, represent him well. In part, by with the spirit of God and the help of brothers and sisters living a life that is reflective of a person who's following Jesus. So is your primary identity in Christ, is your deepest desire to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's where we're going to go tomorrow or next week. Um, one last thing I encourage you right in the street, right in your notes. Um, is this a summary of what I've just been saying. Jesus and Paul, both of them do this. They invite us to lay down our idols and take up what? Our crosses. Both Jesus and Paul do this. They invite us to lay down our idols, take up our crosses, and we won't pull a bait and switch with you here at ECC. We will talk straight with you. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Do you know that? The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. We should present and represent that well, but we should never soften that. That's what Christianity is. It's a call to die to yourself. You know, it's a call to to die, to surrender your rights. Jesus did that. Paul did that. Surrender your dreams. Surrender everything you have. And that doesn't sound like much of an invitation, does it? Doesn't sound, that's one of the reasons why we don't often lead with that. Jesus did. Maybe we should lead with that more. Um, It doesn't sound like much of an invitation, but it is the best trade up you'll ever make. Because he is no fool who gives what he can't have, gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. That's what we're going to pick up next week. So let's stand, let's pray as we go our separate ways. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray the same blessing over us right now that we prayed over the 9 o'clock. Thank you for, for giving me this blessing.
for us, for desiring to bless us this way. Lord, would you help us to see all other idols for what they are? This week, as we go forth to, and, and we engage in those things that, that, that grab our hearts and, and grab our devotion and grab our wallets and, and all these things, Lord, would you help us to see them for what they are? There's probably good in every one of them. Otherwise, we wouldn't be focused on them. But, Lord, help us to see their shortcomings. Help us to see how they don't measure up to that which you're extending to us. Eternal life. A reconciliation with the people we were created to be. A calling to lead others towards eternal life with you. With an identity that doesn't depend on the fickle approval of people, but rests in the event of you making a choice to die on the cross for our sins. Such things are too lofty for our little dull brains to wrap around. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would descend on us even this week and help us to see the way you see things. That next week we may be able to come back and embrace this desire to die that we may be raised up with you and truly discover our identity and truly have a new heart and new mind that is fixed on honoring and serving and knowing and loving you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great, uh, great week.